I'm currently enjoying the myriad of programming on TV and radio that the BBC Gay Britannia series is presenting us. Essentially, I'm a classical liberal. I believe that private consensual activity between two individuals shouldn't be legislated against as long as it doesn't harm the wider population. So, for example, take the sex and drugs argument. Private consensual sex between two individuals in the privacy of their own home really is no business of the law of the state or anybody else. Of course, drug taking is completely different, even if it is private and consensual, because we know that it has an ongoing harm to the wider society. What the impact of rock and roll is, is down to your personal opinion. The Gay Britannia series raises for us questions as to what gay liberation is actually all about. Is it simply about sex, or is it more than sex? The opening drama of the series presented us with a character who ended up in jail for a number of years simply for a consensual sexual relationship with another adult male. Now, the fact that this drama portrayed them jumping into bed together almost straight after meeting uh, sort of challenges some of the liberal Christian assertions that the debate around homosexuality is not about sex but rather about relationships and recognising God in them. Though to be fair a friend of mine did point out that most relationship dramas on TV, gay or straight or somewhere in between, have people jumping into bed together as soon as they meet. But this this dilemma as to whether the issue is about sex or relationships or whatever is not helped by services, for example, as the one in St Martin's in the Field this Saturday to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in England and Wales, not helped by them having as their key item a song performed by the London Gay Men's Chorus, a fantastic choir, but a song based on a Walt Whitman poem which is itself a glorification of sex and orgasm, even to the removal of everything else, including, and I quote from the Walt Whitman poem, books, art, religion, time, the visible and solid earth, and what was expected of heaven or feared of hell, close quote, getting rid of all that that gets in the way of the orgasm that is the pinnacle of the poem. And this all leaves me thinking that I, hmm, the body electric. If orgasm is the greatest goal of human fulfilment, most of us are going to spend the overwhelming majority of our lives operating at a subpar. And as for the eunuchs, well, they're clearly missing out, let alone celibates like Jesus. So much for human flourishing. Perhaps our bishops can help us. Here's Paul Bayes speaking uh, last weekend at the Liverpool Pride, which he has become a patron of. This is uh, an excerpt from his speech uh, as found on YouTube. Have a listen to Paul Bayes. Way forward, and I hope that you will bear with us as we seek ourselves to to find the best way to be inclusive. But today, I'm standing here to say how proud I am to be in a nation which is so enriched by LGBTI people in every walk of life. And to say that that's true in the church and to thank God for the LGBTI clergy and leaders and Christian people who make our church richer too. 
And the last thing to say is to say that I am committed to love. Jesus talked about love. The Bible says God is love. Love is love, not fade away. And the more love we see in the nation, the more delighted I am as a man of faith. And I know that love is manifold. And there's lots of love here in this march today. But just a word particularly. Gosh, wasn't that exciting? Uh, Bishop Paul, I loved all the little pop culture references there. Um, did you hear some of his language? Best way to be inclusive. Committed to love. God is love. Love is love, not fade away. The more love we see in the nation, the more delighted I am as a man of faith. Love is manifold. I wonder whether Bishop Paul would extend that welcome that love is love, not fade away, being applied to polygamous relationships or, let's say, to consensual adult incest. Where does the Rolling Stone stop? Surely if love is love, then the church needs to recognise it in all its manifold forms. Or is the revisionist argument essentially bigoted in its own way, set on celebrating the love that it approves of, but rejecting any notion of fighting for loves that don't take its fancy? As Tom Robinson points out to us in his magnificent song, Sing If You're Glad To Be Gay, direct discrimination against people simply because of the sexual choices and identity that they make or experience is an ugly thing. But then Tom would know a thing or two about discrimination because as a gay activist he suddenly found himself out of liberal left favour when he fell in love and married in 1982 Sue Brearley, to whom he's now been happily wedded to for 35 years and with whom he's fathered children. The levels of abuse Tom received for simply being, in his words, quote, a gay man who happens to be in love with a woman, close quote, was unbelievable. But then revisionist dogma has never been one for allowing experiences outside of its own prescribed norms. Attempts to label him, for example, as bisexual rather missed the point because Tom didn't describe himself as that. So why should you? As Tom wrote in 1996, adding another verse to his hit, quote, while if gay liberation means freedom for all, a label is no liberation at all. I'm here and I'm queer and do what I do. I'm not going to wear a straight jacket for you. And as one gay man married to a woman, to another Tom, amen, amen. The Bible presents us with a meta-narrative of sex and orgasm that is rooted in the binary of male husband and female wife. It's not that human beings are incapable of loving outside of this context. It's just that this is the context in which their love specifically and biologically intentionally speaks of the union of Christ and his church. To elevate the worship of orgasm outside of that framework seems to me to be rooted in worshipping a God who has more in common with Baal than Yahweh. This is fundamentally the problem for revisionists. The traditional Christian theology of sex sees orgasm in marriage as a meaningful Christological statement embedded in the biological and sociological certainties of that relationship. In one sense, the Western sexual liberation since the Second World War, which includes the decriminalisation of homosexuality in England and Wales in 1967, 
has actually created a culture where Orthodox Christians can be much more open and explicit in their exploration of the meaning of sex within a biblical framework. At the same time, however, the glorification of orgasm in and of itself, stripped away from such a biblical framework, including the normative link to procreation, creates tension in any theology that seeks to support it. Why should one orgasm be preferred above another? Why should only two people be involved in a meaningful and spiritually significant orgasm? If procreation is not a normative part of the wider relationship in which the orgasm is situated, why should familial ties be important barriers to love? A society that thinks that love is manifest in many different forms is probably better than one which seeks to censor any expression of, ex of affection outside of a narrow prescription. That's good news for those of us who are more queer than not and don't fit the easy stereotypes of boy meets girl. But the issue the Church of England needs to face as it moves forward is the relationship between love and orgasm. Are we here as a spiritual representative of the zeitgeist or something or someone more? Are we interested in love without orgasm? Orgasm without love? Both together or neither? What are the basic foundations of our theology in this area and are we applying them consistently across the relationships we find around us in 21st century England? Is there truly more to love than boy meets girl or boy meets boy or boy meets boy and girl or any permanent faithful stable relationship you can identify? For a Christian who believes in the bodily resurrection not just of Christ, but of everyone who dies in him and is called to live eternally with him. Issues of physicality are crucial. Walt Whitman's epic poem ends with the following lines. Oh, I say these are not the parts and poems of the body only, but of the soul. Oh, I say now these are the soul. Well, yeah, on this front, he's right. Our body, our soul, our spirit, we are all enmeshed together. And the things that we do with our body have eternal consequences. It's no mistake that the classic line after sex, did the earth move for you, actually indicates that there is a deep spiritual dimension to orgasm and love that the Bible begins to open up for us. The challenge for the Church of England in the 21st century as it wrestles with these issues is to present us with a coherent theology of sex and marriage and orgasm that deals accurately with the biblical witness and deals honestly with the way that orgasm is viewed in the 21st century. I'm Peter Old. And this is Radio Free Canterbury.